Well, good evening. Do you bring greetings from Heritage in Johannesburg? And uh, yeah, also a few weeks ago, I was at a conference. I saw Kanu and Hanu. If some of you, most of you, well, many of you will know Kanu, and some of you might remember Hanu. Uh, and they, they also send greetings and say how much they miss uh, Heritage here in Potchefstroom. Well, this evening we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 15, so please turn there in your Bibles, Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at the, what's known as the parable of the prodigal son, probably the most well-known of all Jesus' sermons, uh, sorry, parables. Uh, I think if we, we, it's probably the most loved and the most well-known. If you think of parables of Jesus, it's probably... Uh, the first one that comes to mind, or uh, near the top at least. But I hope that familiarity will, will not stop this sermon from being fresh. And so uh, please don't switch off right now. If it's bad, you can switch off Okay, later on. But, uh, well, let me read the, the passage first. So from verse 11. And uh, it says, And he said, it's the Lord Jesus, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him? And he said to him, 
Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, just to place it in its context, this, uh, this parable is really part of a longer sermon. The whole chapter, really, chapter 15, uh, is made up of three parables. So Jesus told these three parables at the same time. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so, uh, as Jesus is going around preaching the gospel, uh, sinners, traditional sinners, tax collectors, I'm sure you you know that um, at that time they were seen as traitors uh, because they were Jews who were now working for the Roman government and uh, they would take advantage of their own people. They weren't allowed into the temple to worship. They were seen as unclean. And so you always see that phrase, you know, sinners and tax collectors. Uh, And so the worst of the worst are now coming to hear Jesus. They're responding to the gospel message. They're aware of their sin, and they're they're coming to to receive forgiveness and hope. Uh, But the Pharisees and the scribes are not happy. They're grumbling inside, Uh, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And in response to that, Jesus tells these three parables. And the first one is the lost sheep. You remember that story about the 99 and the one lost sheep. And the the next one is the lost coin, the lady who loses a coin and then finds it and she's super happy. And then this third one about the lost son, really two lost sons, actually. Um, Some commentators have noted uh, and I think there might be something to this. You, you always have to be careful about being too, too subtle when it comes to parables. But I think there might be something to this. The first, the, the lost sheep is lost because of its own stupidity. Okay? Uh, sheep are pretty dumb animals. Uh, I, I've seen this. I'm not a farmer, nor the son of a farmer, but I have, I have seen that and I've read books on it. Uh, they're pretty dumb. From what I understand, goats are the clever ones. But uh, sheep do get into trouble because of their stupidity, and that's very much like us. Uh, sometimes we are lost and because of our own stupidity. The coin is lost because this lady has lost the coin, and in some ways uh, our lostness is also dependent on other people. Maybe uh, our parents didn't teach us the ways of God. Maybe uh, school teachers and professors at university led us astray. Now, that does not negate our personal responsibility, but it is a reality that sometimes people can lead us astray. And part of our lostness can be, could be because of bad influences. Uh, but the lost son in this parable, the first one, is because of his own wickedness. And then the older son is lost because of his own pride and self-righteousness. And lost is a big theme. The word lost is found eight times in this chapter, and the word found is also found eight times. And so that's the primary theme about lostness and then being found by the Lord. And in this parable, we have three primary characters. We have a father and two sons, very traditional setup, a father with his two sons. And so let's look at the first son, the youngest son. He really wants to do his own thing. Um, he, he wants to go off and have, uh, you know, enjoy his life, 
but his father sort of refuses to die. And so he's waiting and waiting for the inheritance because that's really what's going on here. That's what he wants. He says to his father, you know, give me what's, what's coming to me. Give me my inheritance early. Uh, you know, even in our culture, I think that's still offensive. You know, if my, one of my sons came and said, you know, look, just give me my inheritance now, I think I would be offended, even in a sort of non-traditional sort of cultures. But remember that in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was a very shame-honor-based culture. This would be a shameful request. He's basically saying, I wish you were dead so that I could get the stuff that's coming to me. I want, I want to just go and live my life, Okay. Uh, it's a terrible question. Uh, it, it, it would have, it would have, you know, there would have been gasps in the audience, especially from the Pharisees and the scribes. They would have been shocked. You know, how how dare this this upstart uh, speak like this to his father? Really, he should be chased out of the home, and you spit on the ground. And uh, you, you, I mean, we hear of those, you know, honor honor killings or shame killings in in those sort of cultures, don't we? Uh, maybe a person converts to Christianity and then uh, people in the family will go and kill that person or they marry the wrong person, they go and kill them. That's the idea here, but he does not do that. Uh, remember that it, wasn't a, it was an agrarian culture. It wasn't that the, the father could just go and go to the ATM and say, okay, I'm going to draw one-third of my net worth and give it to my son. He couldn't do that. And interestingly enough... Um, there's two words that are used here in the Greek for, for property. And the one is bios, where we get the word biology, the study of life. And so it really says that he divided up his life. Okay. It was his livelihood. He would have to sell off a third of his property to turn it to li- you know, liquidate it, turn it into cash, so that he could give his son cash. He really takes from his own life to give to the son of his who wants nothing to do with him. And so he takes it, and we're told within a few days he leaves. So he doesn't hang around, he's got the money, and he goes. And he goes away to a far country, probably the further the better. He wants to get away from his dad, uh, from that way of living, and he just goes off into a far country, and we're told that he squandered his property in reckless living. Some translations say riotous living. The idea here is just traditional immorality. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's the idea here. He just goes off and squanders his his money, uh, living it up, uh, drunkenness, immoral living. Uh, In fact, the brother in verse 30 says, you know, this brother of mine, or the son of yours, he says, squandered his living with prostitutes. So uh, we don't know if that's true, but most likely it is true that that was part of this lifestyle that he Uh, he went on. And perhaps that's you. Maybe that's where you find yourself now, especially uh, it's a university town and the church in Johannesburg where our pastor, we we are close to Witz and UJ and we do a lot of outreach to students there and it's, this is, this is a common thing. Once you're away from your, your home, once you're away from your parents, once you're away from any sort of oversight, uh, in English, they that say, you know, while the cat's away, the mice will play. That's the idea. No, no more restraints. I can do what I like. No one's going to stop me. Uh, I don't have to go to church anymore. I don't have to listen to my parents telling me what time I need to be back home. Uh, I can do whatever I like. Uh, and maybe that's where you find yourself. You're at a, at a most fundamental level, the son dishonors his father. That's the first thing he does. 
He shows him no respect. He wants to be free from, from any accountability to his parents. And we don't realize maybe how much of a, an important principle that is in Scripture to honor your mother and father. Okay? It's repeated verbatim in the New Testament in Ephesians. Paul says that to the young children. He says, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. He quotes it even with a promise. Uh, in the new covenant, it's eschatological, it's eternal life. Don't think that you will go to heaven if you dishonor your mother and father, if you live a life of uh, abusing your parents and dishonoring them. Maybe you say, That's, it's my life. Okay. Um, when I say that, it always reminds me, from, you know, when I was growing up, there was a guy, a musician called Dr. Alban, and he produced a song, It's My Life. Okay? Maybe those of you who are older will, will know it. But he actually says, that, It's My Life. And he, he, he goes off against his papa. He, says, he calls him Papa Know-It-All. That's what he calls his father. Papa Know-It-All. And he, he says, Stop bugging me. Stop bothering me. That's the song. It's a very catchy song. It, 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 I think you know, it made lots of money. It went to number one. But when you read the lyrics, it's quite disturbing, actually. What he's saying is, Just leave me alone, Dad. Okay, I want nothing to do with you. It's my life. Now, the reality is it's not your life. Okay? Uh, it's not even your parents' life. God has given every one of us life. It's not your life to do with as you please. Our lives are to be lived in submission to God and what he requires of us. Now, this son, he goes and he wastes his money on riotous living. Uh, he takes all the good things God gives us, food, alcohol, sex, love, relationships, and he abuses it. Uh, and so, uh, perhaps again, that's where you, you find yourself. Uh, you, you're a glutton. Okay? Uh, you, 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 you just obsess about eating the best food and all of these things. Maybe you waste food. Uh, it's not really, maybe you're thinking, oh, that's, okay, that's not really such a serious sin. It is a, you know what Proverbs says? If you're a glutton, you know what it says? Slit your throat. Okay? Take a knife to your throat. Okay, that's what it says if you're a glutton. Uh, it's a lack of self-control, and uh, it's a culturally acceptable sin. I was recently in America, the privilege of going there, and uh, everything is, you know, supersized. <laughs> okay, it's just quantity. Not so much quality, but quantity. Uh, but we can, we, can, we can take the good gifts God gives us of food. Isn't it amazing, the gift of food that God gives us to enjoy and all the different flavors, and we can abuse it. We can idolize it. Uh, we can take the gift of alcohol and use it for drunkenness. Uh, we can take money, which is not evil in and of itself, but the love of money can lead to all kinds of evil. We abuse it. We become materialistic and greedy. I listened to a podcast recently. It said for millennia, uh, most people only had about 10 or 20 possessions. And they would be passed down from generation to generation. So you would grow up in a home, and there would be you know, the table, <laughs> the, a wooden table, and then that would be passed to the next generation and the next generation. Uh, but they say now, on average, that uh, average household has about 10,000 items okay, in the West. Um, and we're always replacing and updating, and we want the newest and the best and all of these things. And I'm not... You know, some people are, I idolize minimalism, so that's not what the sermon's about. I'm just simply saying it's easy to worship stuff and things and money 
to be, take the gift of money and be greedy, uh, to idolize sex, to take uh, another person and, and objectify them, to reduce them down to a means of pleasuring oneself. No, no loving covenantal relationship, but you objectify and you use people. Uh, we can do that with everything. That's the problem with us. Our hearts are so wicked. We can take anything that's good and turn it into an idol. You can take you know, rugby. <laughs> I think we saw that, uh, the idol of rugby. Um, we can take a good thing, a beautiful thing like, like sport, hobbies, uh, recreation, and we make it ultimate. We pervert it to take the place of the Creator. And that's really what he does. Traditional sins. Uh, and you might think, well, that's not such a big deal. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And there it is. Uh, if you continue in that lifestyle, do not be deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if you grow up in a Christian home, if you're you know, a member of some church, baptized, or anything like that. If you continue to, to rebel against God's teachings, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not salvation by works. Uh, it's just a reality. If God changes your heart, you will start to put those things off and to fight those things. Verse 11, Paul says this, wonderful, and such were some of you. Okay. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So if that was you, here's the good news, you're washed. You don't need to live with guilt and condemnation anymore. Uh, there's forgiveness in the Lord. It doesn't matter what you've done. Uh, we were um, just going through the pastoral epistles, and, and we do an overview of the Bible at, at Heritage. And uh, you know, Paul says that, that he's the chief of sinners, okay. so that his salvation would be an example to everyone else. If God, you know, what's, you could say, what's the worst anyone could do? And that is kill Christians, okay? Can't really get worse than that, go around murdering Christians. That's what Paul did. And the Lord saved him so that, it doesn't matter what you've done, there's hope. God showed grace and mercy to the Apostle Paul, made him the greatest Christian of all time. There is hope for, for every one of us. Now, the party doesn't last forever for this young man, and, and that's true for every human being. Okay? Um, hopefully it will end soon for you, that you will come to your senses if that's where you find yourself. But even for the person who continues, uh, ultimately they will die. Okay. The party will come to an end. But there are really two things that bring him to a place of absolute desperation. Uh, number one, his own lifestyle means he squanders everything and he runs out of cash. Okay. So reckless living, riotous living, he wastes the money and eventually it's gone. And now he can't continue in that, that lifestyle. So his own, his own lifestyle brings an end to his lifestyle. Okay. But there's a second thing that, that brings him to his knees, and that is a sovereign act of God. We're told here that there's a famine. Okay? And that's frequently the case, that God also has to work sovereignly to bring us to our knees. Events outside of our control that God uses. Okay? 
And perhaps some of you can testify to that. God used something. Maybe it's an accident. Maybe it's some disaster uh, that God used to bring you to your senses. Praise God for his sovereign interference. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until you reach the place where your sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And he ends up feeding pigs just to try and survive in this famine. He gets a job feeding pigs. And if you know anything about the Old Testament and Judaism, you will know that is a no-no. Okay? <laughs> uh, in fact, the rabbis said, cursed be the man who would breed swine. Okay? Cursed be the man who's going to breed pigs. So he's reached rock bottom. He's feeding pigs. Again, the gasps in the audience probably uh, you know, this guy is beyond hope. But in this state, when he's so hungry, he even just wants to eat the food that the pigs have. Okay. In this state, he comes to his senses and he repents. And he says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him. And he prepares a speech to say to his father. You see, repentance is hard work. Okay. It's not something you just fall into. Uh, it takes effort. It takes humbling oneself. It takes preparation. It takes thought. It's not just, ugh, I'm sorry, man. Sorry about that. Uh, what does he do? He prepares and he realizes his sin. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Notice that he begins with heaven. He begins with God. He realizes that his sin is, first of all, against God. And then towards his father. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He says, I, I, I don't, I'm not worthy to come back as a son. Just, just make me a servant. That's all. Uh, you see, it's humbling oneself. He doesn't say, well, dad, it's really your fault if you'd given me more money or you had sent me on a finance course. Uh, it's actually your fault. No, I have sinned. He takes full responsibility for his sin. He is truly repentant. And repentance is critical. You won't get anywhere in the Christian life without repentance. In uh, England, uh, the time of the Reformation, just after the Reformation, uh, England was Roman Catholic, and then through, <laughs> through Henry VIII wanting to divorce his wife, they became Ang uh, Protestant, so it's quite, quite a weird setup. But anyway, uh, what happened is that overnight they became Protestant, in all the churches across England, they had priests, and many of those priests were, were not well educated. They didn't know theology. They would just read what was ever, whatever was put in front of them every week. And so some of the bishops who were truly saved, uh, Latimer and Ridley, began to write sermons to be read throughout England. They call them homilies. And one of them is called a homily of repentance and of true reconciliation unto God. And it starts off like this. There is nothing that the Holy Ghost doth so much labor in all the scriptures to beat into men's heads as repentance. Okay. I like the way he puts that. That's what the Holy Spirit's always doing. He's trying to beat it into our heads to repent. Repentance is not once off. It's not something I did you know, 20 years ago when I put my hand up at a youth camp or something like that. Repentance is a lifestyle. It's a continual turning from sin. 
You will never stop repenting until you die or go to be with the Lord. Okay? It is a way of life. Augustine, the, the bishop in North Africa, one of the most influential Christians in history, you know, on his deathbed, he had um, some people from the church come and write out the penitential psalms. And he would read them often, we're told, with tears in his eyes on his deathbed. Okay. Penitential psalms, are, there's seven of them, the psalms of repentance. The most famous one is Psalm 51, David's psalm of repentance. And so there on his deathbed, uh, Watson says, you need repentance even more at the end of your life. Okay? The older you get, the more we realize we need it. If your Christian growth is like this, sure, the longer I walk with the Lord, the less I need to repent. You're doing it wrong, okay? You don't know yourself. That's, that's, <laughs> it should be the other way around. The longer you walk with the Lord, you more you see how much brokenness and sin and ugliness is in your heart. And so Augustine, the great Augustine, on his deathbed is reading the penitential Psalms of Repentance. Thomas Watson wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And he, he, he says the nature of true repentance. He's going to explain what it is. He says, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. For a further amplification, know that repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients. Number one, sight of sin. You first need to see your sin. You can't repent if you don't see it. Number two, sorrow for sin. You need to have sorrow over it. He talks about David. He said, you know, the same bed that he sinned with Bathsheba on, he made to swim in his tears. Okay. When you read the Psalms, he says, I made my bed to swim in tears. Okay. Number three, confession of sin. Number four, shame for sin. Sometimes you hear Christian testimonies where they're actually almost bragging about their sin. There's no shame. I remember that as a young Christian, a teenager, they had a, a hell's angel who had supposed to have been saved, and he came to give a talk. At the end of the talk, I wanted to be a hell's angel. Okay. He was basically glorying in what he had done. There was no shame. There must be shame for sin. That continues. That You never reach a place where you're like not ashamed of what you did. Paul says that to the Ephesians, those things that you used to do that you are now ashamed of. You can never talk about it in a joking way. Oh, yeah, you used to get so drunk. Uh, for, it, for, for your life here, there will be shame for how you used to live, how you treated the Lord, how you treated others. Number five, hatred for sin. This is one of the hardest things, isn't that right? To hate it. Sometimes we don't hate it. We know it's not right and we know it's destructive. Then pray, Lord, help me to hate it. Okay. Help me to hate this. And number six, turning from it. Turning from sin. He says, if anyone is left out, it loses its virtue. So repentance is critical. This younger son is an example of that. Repentance is whether you're, if you're not a Christian, repent. If you are a Christian, continue to repent. Repentance for, a, for the believer is not, oh, I'm not saved, now I'm saved again, I'm not saved, I'm saved again. It's not, that's not what it is. 
It's, you're in a relation, you're a child of God, you belong to him, but sometimes the fellowship is broken because of our sin. Just as in relationships with friends and spouses, parents and children, sometimes we sin against one another. The relationship doesn't change. They're still my children, still your spouse, but there's a break in the fellowship. That's what happens, and so we need to repent at lifestyle. Now we come to the father. We're told that the son gets up and he, arose, he, he, he goes to go home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So we get the idea that the father was really on the lookout for, for his son. He was regularly looking down the road, looking on the horizon. Maybe one day my, my son will return. That's the impression we get here because he sees him while he's a long way off and he felt compassion. How often are we told about Jesus feeling compassion? Okay. He was moved with compassion. As he saw them, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion. And then he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Okay. Um, again, shocking okay. for a patriarch in the ancient Near East, in a shame-honor culture, to run. Okay? Uh, it would have been shame. You don't do that. You don't behave like that. Okay? Uh, you're supposed to have that gravitas. You just walk somberly, and when you enter a room, uh, everyone knows about it. But here he runs. He can't contain himself. It's a picture of God uh, coming to his people, not caring what others think, humbling himself in that sense, not, not humbling because of sin, but the humiliation of the incarnation, that Christ takes upon himself flesh, the weakness of flesh, humbles himself to become a servant, humbles himself to death, not just any death, but an accursed death on the cross. People spit on him, people mock him, but it's because of his beloved. He comes to, to save his people. And he embraces him, kisses him. Again, shocking to the audience. You don't, now don't take this as a parenting manual, okay? This is not, it's giving us a picture about God. But they would have been shocked by this. You don't do that. If anything, you, you, you reject him or you make him. In fact, there's a, um, there's a, a parable from Buddhism that's very similar. And... Um, the father makes the son work for about 20 years as a, at the bottom until he receives him back. That's more like how we work. God embraces him. And he starts with his, remember, he's prepared this whole repentance uh, speech. And he starts, he gets about halfway through, and, and the father's just like, <laughs> quick, get a robe, put a ring on him, put, put shoes back on him, kill the fatted calf. He doesn't even let him finish. Uh, he receives him back. And he gives him all the signs of sonship. That's what a ring meant. That's what shoes meant. Slaves didn't have shoes because they weren't supposed to run away. So they, they, they weren't allowed shoes to slow them down a bit. Uh, but, but he's given him shoes and a robe and he kills a fatted calf, which was, which was um, lavish. Okay? We are very privileged to eat meat regularly. That's not the case in the, in this, the ancient world at this time. It was a rare thing. So for them to kill the animal was costly. He does that. He says, kill the fatted calf. And uh, a sign of, of the gospel, the Lord receiving him back. But we come now to the second son, the older son. And really, 
It's called the parable of the prodigal son, and we all remember the younger son, but really the parable is primarily about the second son. Because remember the audience is the Pharisees and the scribes who are upset with him. And the second son is representing them. Okay. Uh, so the older son is in the field. He was out working. Obviously, that's what he would be doing. He's a good son. Okay. He comes back and he hears music and dancing. Already he's upset. Okay. You know people like that. What's going on here? Is somebody having fun? Uh, we'll put a stop to that. <laughs> uh, it was... Uh, a pejorative about the Puritans. A Puritan is defined as someone who has a haunting suspicion that someone somewhere is having fun. Okay, <laughs> That's not what they were like at all, actually. But anyway, um, he immediately is upset okay, because people are enjoying themselves. Um, and he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. This is verse 26. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Look at this response. There's no joy. My brother has come home. Dad will be so happy. I love my father. He's been heartbroken. These years I've seen him and it's been so... I've, I, I've been praying every night for my brother to return. He's angry immediately. He's upset. Uh, he is selfish. He does not care about his brother. He does not care about his father. He reveals himself to be exactly the same as the younger brother was. He just wanted the father's stuff. But he just went about it a different way. He was playing the long game. I'll do what he tells me to do until he passes away. Okay? That's how I'm going to get the stuff. The other son was more forthright and just said, give me this stuff. There's no, no joy in him, no love whatsoever. The father comes out to call him. Again, very shameful in that culture that he has to make the father leave his home, come out to him in the field and call him back in. So you see, he, he brings shame upon the father just like the younger son. But the father, notice, he entreats him. But he answers his father, verse 29, Look, these many years I have served you and, you, and I never disobeyed your command, which is obviously not true, okay, it's not perfect, but that's how a self-righteous person feels. So here, every one of us will lean in a certain direction, okay? So this title for this is The Two Sons. Uh, depending on your genetics, on your upbringing, a whole lot of things, you will lean in a certain direction, Sometimes you'll, you'll flip between. Sometimes we're licentious and sometimes we're self-righteous at the same time. But generally, you're going to lean in certain directions. Some of you are more prone to just traditional immorality. You battle with the things of this world. That's your Achilles heel. Battle with lust. You battle with food and drink and self-control and money and those kind of things. Some of you will be more. That's not really where your battle is. You you might even not, not even think of it as a battle. You actually just think, I'm good. Okay? Well, there, there's your battle right there. You're not good. You're self-righteous. You're full of yourself. And that's, the, that's what we see here. So this applies to everyone. Everyone here applies to me. I preach it to myself first. But every, it doesn't matter where you are, you're going to fit into this parable. Okay? You're, you're one or the other, or sometimes you're both. 
but we fit in here. And he is self-righteous. He is full of himself. He is upset because, remember, that property that was cut up belong, you know, was really going to be left to him, ultimately. And now it's gone to the younger son. Uh, he's upset now that this calf, because really that would have been left to him, that fatted calf would have been left to him. Now it's been slaughtered for this useless brother of his. He can't enjoy that his brother has returned. He does not love his, his father. He was the good son. Everyone told him that. Okay. Can you imagine in the village? Thank goodness your father has you. you know, but you're not like that. That younger brother of yours. I always knew he'd be trouble, but at least you're around. You see, he grew up, he went to synagogue. Maybe, maybe that's you. You grew up in a Christian home. You, you know the morality. You have the leather-bound Bible, <laughs> the zip-up Bible. Uh, you, you have all the things. Uh, you, that's what the Pharisees and the scribes were like. That's exactly what they were like. They had all the boxes ticked. They were all worried about the externals. Um, they... they they, were even up, they would even tie their, their herbs, okay, cut up their herbs, all of these things. But they hated God. They were full of themselves. You see, Matthew 23, the Lord Jesus confronts the Pharisees. It's quite remarkable. Uh, if you ever listen to an audio version of, of one of the Gospels, you listen to it in one go or sit down and read it in one go, it's quite remarkable how often the Lord Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. Why do you think he did that? It's because he loved them. Okay. It's because he's reaching out to them. Why else would he spend so much time with them, confronting them of their sin, pointing it out to them? Matthew 23, he points out a whole lot of things. And this, this is for you to examine your heart. It might be that you're a Pharisee in this way. Verse 5 says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Is that what you're concerned about? What others think of you, that's the most important thing. What will other people think? You're, you're actually more concerned that people think you're holy than, you're act, than being actually holy. Okay. Verse 16, he says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. What, what's going on here is they make loopholes. So they said, No, if you make an oath by... The temple, that's, you know, you could break that one. But if you make an oath by the gold in the temple, okay. it's like saying, I, you know, I had my fingers crossed. Okay. <laughs> that's how they could get out of things. No, but I just swore by the temple, it's not the same. Okay. They made loopholes. You can know you're a Pharisee or have a, have a heart of a Pharisee if you make loopholes. You justify your own sin. Other people battle with their temper. <sighs> Lack of self-control. You know. Yeah, you get people like that. You know, I preached this sermon at Heritage. I got an email the next day. Oh, it's so sad that there are people like that. The whole point was, you are the people like that. How can somebody send me an email saying, I'm so sad there's people like that. We are the people like that. They missed the whole thing. So if you're sitting there, you know that the Bible doesn't hold out much hope for Pharisees because they, they've convoluted their guilt with self-righteousness and religiosity. It's hard for the Pharisee to see, actually, it's me. I'm the problem. And you make loopholes for yourself. When you lose your temper, it's different. It's righteous anger. Or it's 
or no one's ever been in a situation like this. You know there are people who are always upset when other people are late. Can't they get their act together? What's wrong with them? Then their parents teach them. When they're late, it's like, no, well, there was traffic. I mean, I, there was all these other things beyond my control. Okay? It's justified for them. That's a silly example, but that's, you understand the principle. You apply it to other, you have a standard that you don't even keep, but you justify it. It's, it's different for you. But you look down on others, that's the heart of a Pharisee. He goes on to say they're like whitewashed sepulchers, okay? full of dead men's bones. On the outside they look good, but on the inside it's full of death. Okay? It's an ugly, ugly thing. It's a terrible thing. You see, the Pharisee has to repent as well, even of the good things he's done, because he never did any good things because he loved God. You saw that. He obeys the Father. He has no love for the Father. He just wants to get the stuff. Okay? That's the prosperity gospel right there. Okay? Do stuff so you can get stuff. It's not love for God. It's not about a relationship with the living God and knowing Him, whom to know is life. And we can fall into that. One, another way you can tell if you're a Pharisee is when your life goes south. You say to God, why did you allow this after all the things I've done for you? I've served you so much. You know how much money I've given to the church and you allow this to happen to me. See that in your heart. My Old, my old Testament lecturer said this, that's how you know you're a briber and not a worshiper. Okay? You're trying to bribe God too, to do nice things for you and then you can't take it. You say, I've done all these good things, why did you do this? Okay. Someone called it McDonald's Christianity. You, you pull up at the window, you place your order, God, I want this. You go to the next window, you give your money, and then you go to the third window and you get it. Okay? So you like, this is, I, I followed the steps, but I got to the third window and I never got anything. Well, I got a cockroach in my hamburger. <laughs> and then you're angry with God, but I, I did all these things. But that, that's not a relationship with God. You just want the stuff from Him. Another thing, you might be a Pharisee, is if you, if you say, you know, we need, we need faithful preaching hard preaching. But actually by that, what you mean is for everyone else to be slammed, but not you. Okay? I've seen this enough times. I know I look very young, but <laughs> I'm actually older. Uh, uh, I've seen it enough times. People will complain about preaching, and they say, you know, we need to be harder on this. We need to be harder on this. But when I talk about division and complaining and grumbling, that's, that's touching their sin. You see, the Pharisees, God confronted their sin harshly. But they were upset because he didn't nail the prostitutes and the tax collectors. You see, you're not being faithful to God. Don't think you're a, you know, a strong Christian because you want, you know, we need to be firm on these things. No, you just like other people getting smashed. We don't come to church. Well, I hope you don't. We shouldn't come to church so other people can get smashed. <laughs> we come to church so God will speak to us. Speak to me, Lord. Reveal my sin. Give me the grace to repent. Help me to love more. Help me to forgive others. But often we do sit there like that. we like, oh, if only they had been here. That was such a good sermon for them. Okay. Um, please don't send me an email like that. <laughs> Look at the father's response, verse 31. He said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate 
and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The grace of the Father again. Now, uh, literary critics, people who understand uh, storytelling and um, you know, poetry and parables and that, they say that there's a section missing from this, this parable. It's left hanging. There's no denouement. There's no conclusion. It's not brought to a, an, an end. It's left here. Because there should be an end telling us what the older son does. Okay? Okay. The next part, part four, should be, okay, the older son did da-da-da-da. It's left there. Uh, one pastor said something that I thought was quite effective. He said the next part is the older son picks up a stick and beats, beats his father to death. Okay. Now you might be thinking, well, what's that? where does that come from? Well, what did the Pharisees do later on to the Lord Jesus Christ? They had him crucified, didn't they? Um, they had him put to death. And that's the idea. They turned. They didn't listen to this parable. They turned on the Lord Jesus Christ. They rejected God. But let me say this. It's not all the Pharisees. Okay? There are many Pharisees who believe. We're told that in Scripture. Many of the Pharisees believed. Nicodemus believes. Paul was a Pharisee. The Lord saved him. So if you're a Pharisee, there's still hope. Okay? And if we're honest, all of us have a little Pharisee in our hearts. There is grace, there is forgiveness, but you're going to also have to humble yourself. You know what caught Paul out? He tells us this in in Romans chapter 7. He tells us elsewhere, concerning the law, blameless. He's talking about before he was a believer, before he was a Christian. Concerning the law, blameless. You think, how could he say that? What he means is the external law. No one could point a finger at Paul. He didn't lie, he didn't steal, he didn't commit adultery, he didn't blaspheme. But you know what got him? He tells us in Romans 7. But the law said, thou shalt not covet. See, covetousness, I can't tell if you're coveting. I can't see your heart. You see, all the others, they were external. What got him was his heart. That's what must get every one of us. What's going on in my heart? People can look, oh, he's a pastor, blah, blah, blah. He's this or he's that. He he leads worship. He's all of these things. But God doesn't want to just change the external. He wants to change the heart. He wants to change on who we are to be like Jesus. And so that's what got him. Uh, And may the Holy Spirit do that in every one of our our lives. The good news is, as we've seen, God is, is quick to forgive. Do you know that he's more willing to forgive than you are to even repent? He runs towards his His son. Because of Christ, we can be forgiven. Because of what he has done, we can be forgiven. Whether you're licentious or a Pharisee, there is forgiveness. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this glorious parable, the greatest of all the parables, the most powerful parable. We find ourselves in the story. Thank you so much we find the gospel in the story. Thank you for your love for us triune God. Thank you, Father, for choosing a people. Thank you for sending your Son. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and taking upon yourself flesh and dying in our place. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for changing our nature, changing our hearts, giving us life. We pray that you would help us to become more and more like you, to put off self-righteousness, to put off licentiousness, 
please work in all of our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.